In America, we're no strangers to conflict. Some of the biggest changes in our history, the right to vote for women, civil rights, and the end of the Vietnam War came from conflict. But today our conflict looks a little different. Instead of constructive conflict, now we've entered into what journalist and New York Times bestselling author Amanda Ripley calls high conflict. High conflict is a complicated distinction, but one that Ripley believes could make all the difference in shifting our polarization. So much so that she spent an extensive amount of time writing a new book aptly titled High Conflict, Why We Get Trapped and How We Get Out. Since it was published recently, the book has received notable attention from CBS Sunday Morning and the Wall Street Journal. And as Amanda told us, the seeds for her book were planted during her time as a journalist. I was covering all kinds of stories about human behavior and sometimes politics, sometimes other things. And I found that I got to a point around four years ago where it just seemed like journalism was often making things worse, even unintentionally. And I wanted to see if there was another way to understand conflict and to be useful in a really polarized climate. So I got 80 hours of mediation training. I just sort of started hanging out with and following around people who do conflict differently than journalists who might be you know, mediators, diplomats, negotiators, psychologists, and also people who were themselves stuck in pretty unpleasant conflicts, personal, political, otherwise, and who had made some kind of journey to a place where that conflict was much more productive. So I wanted to see like, how does that happen? What does that look like? And are there any lessons that the rest of us can learn? And it just so happened that there is, in fact, a lot we can learn about improving conflict, enough to fill a whole book. Following our research on politics, polarization, and purpose, we sat down with Amanda to discuss the current state of our nation in the context of our recent findings and her understanding of conflict. Today, we'll discuss how storytelling, whether through the media or public relations, has an impact on conflict. And we will explore how we can better communicate the facts to our audiences in a time when it's increasingly difficult to agree on what the facts even are. I'm your host, Fred Cook, and this is PR Future. It's interesting, in our survey, we asked journalists, PR people, and then just average citizens, whether they thought that given that we have a new administration, polarization will stay the same, decrease or increase. Most of them thought it would stay the same or increase. And I wonder what your feeling was about that. I think that's probably right. I think that unfortunately, at this level of conflict, the conflict itself is kind of in control in a way. So it's very hard to disrupt it by doing the same things. Usually in this level of conflict, which I call high conflict, everything you do to make the conflict go away makes it worse. So it's a little bit of a negative feedback loop. It can be interrupted, but you have to do things differently. So yeah, so I guess I was interested to see that and uh, I think it's probably right, but it doesn't, doesn't have to be that way. Given that negative feedback loop, in your history in journalism, how do you think media has contributed this current level of conflict that we're experiencing? It's hard to generalize, as you know, about 
about radically different kinds of news media from local TV news to NPR to Fox to Breitbart to Vox. I mean, there's just so much out there, so much noise, right? But I do think that a couple of things have happened. One is that the business models of print media in particular, but other formats as well, became so compressed and pressurized that, you know, just getting people's attention is obviously the most successful model at this point. And that's the same model as Facebook and Twitter, right? Those are attention economies. And when you have that kind of model, it's easy to resort to the sort of lowest common denominator. And so for the news media, often that is fear, anger, those kinds of negative stories that drive a lot of attention but don't necessarily take a lot of work. Trump was just masterful, right, at using the media because every day he'd just say something and then there'd be 2,000 stories. That is a very easy story to do, but not one that necessarily illuminates anything and definitely fuels the cycle of conflict. And now at this stage, we're at a point where the conflict is so magnetic that it's very hard for anyone to resist, right? So increasingly, I think, many journalists are part of the conflict because they are human, right? So they too are incredibly frustrated or frightened or stressed out about the political problems they see. And it's impossible to separate that from the work that you do. I don't think, I mean, I think there are lots of good journalists doing good work with integrity, but I think it's getting harder and harder to see the whole picture. And that's how high conflict works, narrows your vision. And you talked about the business model. How does polarization and conflict affect ratings? I just finished a story on TV news where it does seem like the rating system isn't the only problem, but it's a big driver of kind of fear-based coverage, right? A TV executive was telling me that the rule used to be if you could scare people enough, you could get them to watch five more minutes. You know, I think that that has gone on a very long time. It's also gone on in other countries, so you know it's not unique to us. But um, one thing that we know that I think is important is that Americans have increasingly felt more afraid, particularly of crime, as crime decreased dramatically. And I can't explain that without looking at the news coverage, right? I mean, there is no... <laughs> There's no world in which the news coverage doesn't matter for that. But we do know that when people are frightened of each other, they make very different decisions, right? And trust declines. So there's a lot of interacting forces here, and, and I don't want to get too in the weeds, but I do think that the kind of ratings-driven clickbait coverage that we've seen, and this is not a surprise to anyone, does tend to, among other things, make people afraid. We ask journalists. Now that Trump was out of office, would there be decline in political news? And they said yes. And they also thought there would be a decline in viewership. But on the other side of the coin, they thought that fake news would increase, and so would conspiracy theories. So how do you, how do you justify those two things together? I don't know. I mean, conspiracy theories are such an interesting mystery. And one of the things we do know, I think, from the research is that loneliness and alienation make people very vulnerable to conspiracy theories. Mm -hmm. So you would think that, again, here we have the pandemic interacting, right? So 
if we continue to open up as a country, people continue to hire other people and there's more sense of connection and less fear, I would expect a decline in some conspiracy theories, but that doesn't change the amount of disinformation and fake news and other problems that we've got going on. So it's, it's hard to separate out these things, but certainly we know by now that interest in the news has declined precipitously, and that's probably a good thing. Is it a good thing because you think that it may shift the focus of the people creating the content? I think that a lot of the content that has dropped off now, a lot of it was frightening and fear-based and outrage-based, not all of it, right? But that doesn't help the conflict. So I'm interested in disrupting those negative feedback loops that we talked about. I'm interested in how do you change the path that we're on, which is a path towards more political violence. And I think the less people are sort of inundated with frightening, angering information, confusing information, the better. Now. You know, do I think people still need to be informed and do I still think great stories need to be told? I, I definitely do. What do you think the media's responsibility is for reducing this division between people in our country? Do they have a responsibility to do that? You know, it's interesting. I don't think that most journalists feel like they have a responsibility, except when I talk to journalists in other countries. So journalists in other countries where there has been a recent history of widespread political violence seem to see their job differently than we do. They do feel like it is their job to reduce the chances for political violence. And that changes things that they do, particularly around elections. You know, like in Nigeria, major radio stations are just accustomed to cutting the mic if they're interviewing a candidate who starts lying, right? But they've done that in a context in which they are trusted. So there are many countries like Nigeria where there are still trusted news outlets that are believed more or less by multiple sides, by multiple political followers. We don't have that, right? So when we deplatform or cut the mic on someone, it's perceived uh, by half the country roughly as, you know, censorship and as wildly unjust. So it's very tricky to do when you don't have that trust. I don't see as much concern as I would like to see at the national level in this question you asked about what are what is the role of journalists and the obligation of journalists. I do see some cool things happening at the local level, partly because they don't have a choice. I mean, they have to rebuild trust or they will not be in existence in five years. In your book, you have some interesting terminology that I had never heard before. It was fascinating. And one was uh, conflict entrepreneurs. Can you tell us what a conflict entrepreneur is? And then are there conflict entrepreneurs in the media? Yeah, so a conflict entrepreneur is just a person or a platform or a company that intentionally tweaks or exploits conflict for their own ends. So it might be for profit, but often it's for something more subtle. It's for a sense of purpose, meaning, camaraderie, power, all of those things incentivize conflict entrepreneurs. And we have designed a lot of institutions to really reward conflict entrepreneurship, right? Like social media, but also politics and other things. So right now there is a big market for conflict entrepreneurs. And I don't think it will always be that way, but that's, that's where we are right now. And certainly, yes, you know, people in the news media and various companies have 
have acted as conflict entrepreneurs, sometimes on purpose and, and sometimes by accident. What they want is status. The same thing people want on Twitter. You know, they want to be successful. They want to be influencing the conversation. They want to be important. They want to feel like they're doing something that's a big deal. Twitter is a great example. We talked about media. How has social media contributed to this, the level of conflict and polarization we're currently experiencing? Well, social media is interesting, right? Because it's kind of like a microcosm of the problem. Like if you look at who's on Twitter, it's about 20% of the country. And then if you look at who posts on a regular basis, it's really the extremists and the journalists <laughs> and the PR people, <laughs> and that's it. So it's a totally warped, you know, feedback mechanism that journalists rely on a lot. I don't know if PR people do, I suspect they do, but it really changes your perception of the world. I mean, there are ways to design it differently, right? So even if that's still gonna be the incentive, you could design it so that you could get a sense of like, how many people does this tweet really represent, you know, in the world? Do I really have to lose sleep over this? You know, one of the things journalists I know fear most is like a tweet storm, right? Like just getting attacked and they might get 500 tweets. Okay. Is that a meaningful number? <laughs> you know, if these are 500 extremists who are, you know, activists, that's important to know. I'm not saying it's not worthy, but if there are 5,000 other people who feel very differently, that's important to know too, right? And it just doesn't surface typically on Twitter. And the same was true years ago with the comment section, right? It is a really interesting way in which we've, we've designed our world to make our, ourselves miserable in some <laughs> ways, you know, because you remember those really negative tweets. That's the most established human phenomenon there is, is the negativity bias. It's like, we, we can't help it. We're hardwired to really feel those attacks and they may not be meaningful. Some of them are from bots. And I know your book has some historical examples. In recent history, when did you see this conflict escalate to the point where it is today? Was it when Trump was elected or, or before that? I think it was before that. I mean, certainly in the data, the polarization really picked up in starting in the 80s. And it was around the same time that trust in a lot of institutions was started falling as well, or flatlining in other cases. So I think that was also when, you know, talk radio, Fox News, other things really realized that there were a lot of Americans who weren't being well served by mainstream media outlets like Time Magazine and CNN, places I worked for. And they just, their values and their concerns weren't reflected. So there was an opening there and there was an opening to do some good journalism, right? That was like really important and meaningful to many millions of Americans. And some of that happened on Fox, but also what happened is that they realized you could really appeal to a niche audience through fear and anger-based coverage grievances that would give you a huge competitive advantage in a crowded marketplace. And then other places have realized that as well. And, and so I kind of trace it back a little further, but certainly Trump is a master conflict entrepreneur, no doubt, right? Um, this is a person who is psychologically very needy, right? Needs a lot of attention and needs to feel like he's important. And he's not the only one, right? There are a lot of politicians like this, but he was very good at, um, at playing that game and really tweaking the conflict to drive the narrative. And the media went along with it, um, partly because they've never really encountered somebody like that before. One of the things that you do now in your career and in your book is you 
advise journalists on how to tell stories or write stories or conduct interviews in a way that won't contribute to polarization. It's a complicated topic, but I, I wondered if you could sort of summarize for us your, your learnings or your teachings on that topic. The brain behaves differently in high conflict. So doing traditional storytelling doesn't work when you're talking about a very controversial issue. So the kind of catchphrase I ended up using was to complicate the narrative, right? We know that complexity, if it's accurate, can revive curiosity even when people are divided on the topic. So the question becomes, what is the narrative? And that depends on the audience, right? And the subject. But you got to figure out what is the narrative you're, you're trying to complicate? And it has to be true, you know, like if you're talking about uh, vaccines, right? And the narrative that is on many people's minds on the left, I think it's fair to say, is that people who are resisting the vaccine don't believe in science and are like, you know, ignorant Trump supporters. The first step is to ask, first of all, listen to the people on the left. Is that actually the narrative? Then the next step is to investigate that. Like, is that actually true? You know, with like truly true curiosity. Is that actually true? What does the what does the polling say? What does the research say? Go out and talk to people. Go do the reporting and really listen, right? Like really listen and see. In fact, usually it's like not one thing, right? It's usually like 17 different things <laughs> that people are having in their heads. And they're not anti-vaxxers or pro-vaxxers. They're somewhere in the middle. Most of us are. There was a nice piece in the Washington Post by Dan Diamond about Frank Luntz had done a focus group on people who were resisting the vaccine on the right. And he went in thinking that if he could just get Trump and people they trusted from politics to do a public service announcement in favor of the vaccine, that would be like the golden ticket. And what people told him was they didn't want any politician to tell them <laughs> what to do with a vaccine. You know, they wanted to understand the science better. They want, they were very in, interested in the number of people who had done the clinical trials because it's such a large number. And then this is my favorite part. They said they wanted officials, politicians, and scientists to acknowledge that there are some things they don't know. It's not zero risk, right? Almost nothing is zero risk. And just acknowledge it. And that's just, what that is, is showing that you've heard them, right? That you've heard someone and you're not just shutting them down and treating them like idiots. So um, to me, that was a valuable story that complicated my own narrative about what, it, what is really going on um, without collapsing into simplicity. So curiosity, makes people more open to ideas that might be different than their own. Right. If you look at the study of curiosity, it's literally just when there's a gap between what you expect and what actually seems to be happening. And you want to find, you want to close that gap, right? Mm -hmm. It's what suspense is. It's what interest is. And so then it's like, well, right now, if every headline you feel like, you know, <laughs> You already knew that, right? right. You, you, then there's no curiosity. So it's about figuring out what is the assumption everyone has, but no one's actually done the reporting. No, I think PR feels the same way. I think oh, there's really? always a, a sense that if you can get the facts out, if you can tell people what the facts were in the story, that they'll understand your point of view. Oh, I see. Yeah. And so it's first the facts and then the story, as right. opposed to the other way around. Right. Yeah. It has taken me a long time and I'm still working to like loosen my grip on the facts as like the most powerful 
currency because that's like my whole identity was around that, right? If I can just get the facts and get them right and try to be fair. I thought it was like my whole, <laughs> if there was any reason for my existence, it was that. So it's very hard to accept that that's just not how humans work, especially in conflict, right? It's not how I work. So accepting that and realizing that trust precedes facts. Facts matter. It's not that they don't matter, but they're not the only thing that matter and they're not the first thing that matters. And people don't necessarily agree about whether a fact is true or not true. Right now, it's very tricky, right? Because if there's no trusted news source that's agreed upon, then you know you literally can have parallel universes. That's where I think local is the way to go at this point. At the local level, everybody knows the bridge that collapsed across town because they see it with their eyes, right? Um, no national media outlet has that advantage anymore. So, you know, there's, I think, the most hopeful innovators uh, in storytelling is going to be at the local level for a while. We saw in our survey that the PR people and the journalists, when we were asked questions about polarization, agreed almost on almost everything. It was remarkable. How do you think this conflict resolution and this idea of approaching, making a story more complex, how, how do you see that impacting PR people who are often representing businesses or uh, organizations? There's a couple tricks that I teach journalists that maybe will be helpful. I don't know, you can tell me, because this idea of complicating the narrative is really interesting, but there's a lot to it and it can get kind of uh, abstract. So let's start with something that's a little bit more tangible and doable. Um, so we know when people are really dug in on something, they tend to be more open to facts they don't want to hear if they're shown to them visually. So like literally a graphic or a chart, right? A data visualization, as opposed to someone telling you something uh -huh. seems to overcome confirmation bias a little better. So that's the kind of thing where if I'm trying to convey something, I want to invest some money in a data visualization that I can then put out on social or on TV or whatever, every time this topic comes up that will help people absorb what I'm trying to tell them. And I think nobody knows why Brendan Nyhan at Dartmouth is the one who did the research on this. And it's really interesting. Uh, and it's hard to know why it is that people will accept information in a chart and not, and not when it's told to them. But I think it's because it feels like you're coming to the conclusion, you know, not someone telling you. And that we know from storytelling, that's the best, right? When you're in a movie and it's like a mystery and you figure it out like one second before they tell you, that's way more satisfying than just being told. And we, you know, there was a quote somewhere, I forget who said it, but the, the person who is most trusted in conflict is yourself, <laughs> right? So if you read a bar graph showing, you know, the number of people who have died from COVID and you read it, it's like more persuasive than if somebody tells you the number of people who died. Well, that's, that's a fascinating way to look at it. Because when you watch cable news, it feels like you're being lectured for the first 20 minutes of each hour. It's not we're presenting the facts for you to decide. It's almost like we're telling you what we think. And they're just talking at us for the longest time. And I and I remember growing up, the news wasn't a lecture in that way. Do you, do you see a change there? Yeah, like it's more opinion. Yeah. And less, yeah, yeah, it's like more strident. And part, some of that you would expect, like when 
when people are in high conflict, which is like an us versus them kind of very narrowing mode of, of thinking where you feel like things are very clear, too clear, you're going to see more sort of strident opinion. So some of that I don't think is purposeful or connected to the business model. And some of it is connected to the business model. So like mm-hmm. both things are have the psychological or financial. Well, I think if you watch CNN or MSNBC, cutting away over and over to Ted Cruz, it's just like yelling fire in a crowded movie theater. It's just one of those things that's going to make people mad that are watching because Ted Cruz doesn't believe this was a problem. That, that sort of thing, I think, is what you don't notice until you start looking for it. And then you begin to see, after I was talking to you and reading your materials, I began to see how they were purposely trying to make me mad. And I mm-hmm. think that's because they want me to watch that extra five minutes. Uh-huh. That's the question about Joe Biden. As a president, he doesn't have that same impact as, as Trump. Whether you like him or not, he doesn't right. make people upset as much. And right. so I think they may not want to watch him on television. Like part of me feels like, yeah, they do want to enrage. And that's why they're giving you these usual suspects, both basically arguing opposite things that we can predict in advance. Part of me feels like it's also just like easy. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. let's not underestimate the power of just uh doing things the way you've always done them let's talk about that complexity that ambivalence that tension that ways in which you know why are we stuck that's a good point and do you think that when people are looking for interview subjects they don't go to these people in the middle because they don't have a clear point of view or it makes the story more complicated than they want it to be we underestimate the audience's ability to tolerate complexity and the interest they have in that complexity. Uh-huh. And secondly, yeah, it's less predictable. So if you only have, you know, an hour to get the tape, you're going to go with what you what you know is going to happen, right? But I also think there are people trying to do this differently. It can be done differently. And some of it is just proving creating enough proof points for, hey, you can do a story in an hour that's compelling that people will watch for four minutes and isn't the usual thing, you know? If we look at Congress and we think they're not going to be changing anytime soon, and if you look at the media and think they have sort of a vested interest in keeping things going this way, then there's business. And, you know, a lot of the people in the public relations world work for a company or an agency that represents companies. And more and more of these companies are playing a role, speaking up about some of these issues. Do you think there's an opportunity for business to help bring people together or create at least a dialogue around some of these topics? I do think that there's a certain way in which business leaders need to be careful not to politicize what they do because once everything gets politicized then it's you won't be heard anymore Mm -hmm. so it's it's very tricky and i appreciate how complicated that balancing act must be because part of why businesses are trusted slightly more than than other institutions is that we feel like we know that they're just interested in profit but once we start thinking they're actually ideologically motivated you know, as has now been concluded about big tech companies, rightly or wrongly, then you lose that tiny advantage you had, right? Because then it's not about profit, right? It's it's about politics. So it's very tricky, but I, I certainly think that there's a way in which 
business people often find to transcend some of the worst pitfalls of high conflict. They don't always succeed and often happens within their organization, not just outside, right? right? Where you have extremists within the organization that can kind of hijack the conversation. Um, so there again, my advice to people is to always think about how you can shift high conflict to good conflict. Conflict isn't the problem. Conflict is important for society, but you got to cultivate ways to keep curiosity alive in conflict, to make the conflict healthy and productive so that it goes somewhere interesting. And that requires kind of creating a different culture around conflict, right? And asking a lot of questions and doing a lot of listening and acknowledging a lot of nuance and breaking through these false binaries, right? And acknowledging that there are seven sides to this issue, not two. And so it's a different way that you talk about conflict and a different way you interact in conflict, but it, it is, I think, over the long term, a much better play than trying to play in the arena of high conflict. One of the things that we've found is a lot of the activism, corporate activism is driven by the employees of that company. Mm. They want to work for a company that takes a stand on a particular issue that's important to them. You know, during the Black Lives Matter protests this summer, a lot of companies spoke out on behalf of Black Lives Matter. But a lot of that's driven by employees who want to see their, their employer take a stand on something. Yeah. And, and customers too. I think customers are going to be more demanding. So it's not just the activists, but the people that are closely involved in it that, that they have to care about. That's super fascinating. I mean, I, I think looking at the trust research, I just did this piece on trust and it's such a fascinating subject. I mean, you could do a whole class just on trust because what is it? Like, we don't actually know for sure. We know there's at least two kinds of trust. One is affective trust, which is like with your heart. And one is cognitive, which is like with your head, right? And both are really important. And usually you start out with cognitive trust where you trust things with your head because, you know, the person's reliable, they show up on time, they do what they say they're going to do. Okay. You know, I trust them. they're basically competent. And then over time, if you feel like they get you, like they have the same sense of humor, they seem to be like, they have integrity, like these deeper things lead to affective trust. And then this really amazing thing happens with humans where um, once you get to that level of trust, it sort of doesn't matter what else they do. Like they can stop showing up on time. They can stop delivering <laughs> reliably and you still trust them. So like, there's this weird kind of cycle that takes hold. Um, and it's very powerful. You see it with a company like Apple, right? Where there's like a romance to it, a buy-in to it. And I remember when the first uh, iPod came out and years ago and my husband got me one and put all our music on it. It was super exciting and it broke the first day. Um, so I went to take it back. It was like for Christmas, I went to take it back and I'm in line to return it. And there's 20 other people in line holding iPods, right? And I was thinking how, wow, if this were another company, it would be like the end of story. Like I would just stop buying their products, but because there was so much trust and, and kind of magic around the brand you forgive a lot right because you got that affective trust because you talk about how these disagreements end up with people ending relationships or breaking off relationships i think there's a number in your book 30 million people broke off relationships with a friend or a relative over donald trump being president that's right it's higher now but yes so 
can you get to a point where you can disagree with somebody but still maintain a relationship with them? Why, why does that have to be part of that? In high conflict, it's very hard to do that. But I've now seen enough people make that shift from mm -hmm. high conflict to good conflict that I'm 100% convinced that it can be done. And it is actually a much better feeling, like witnessing and experiencing good conflict is like you are the person you want to be. It's a much better feeling than being in high conflict because you're able to do two things at once. Like it's like a juggling act. Like you're able to stand your ground, express your points of view, say hard things, and still be curious about the other person and still retain some baseline level of dignity and decency. The analogy would be like William Urey is a negotiator, has worked all over the world. And, and uh, he has this quote where he says, you know, you can't win the marriage, right? Like if you're in a fight with your partner, there are certain lines you don't want to cross if you want to stay married, right? If you want to stay in good conflict because you have kids together, right? Like you can't annihilate this person, right? And the same is true in politics. Like there's a way to do this that is healthy. And there's been a bunch of research on couples that do this, by the way, where conflict for them still happens, but it doesn't degrade the relationship. Um, so that's, I think, proof that it can be done. I've seen it done. And we have to sort of work on creating more institutions and norms to help make it easier. What is the first step down that path? Is it just recognizing that there is a different way? I think knowing, okay, there's high conflict. It's very magnetic. It's hard to resist. There are certain like red flags that high conflict may be coming and you want to avoid those red flags. So one of them is humiliation. Humiliation reliably <laughs> increases your odds of high conflict. Um, there are lots of reasons for that, but the bottom line is don't humiliate your opponent. Just don't do it. It's not worth it. You're handing them a weapon, which will be used against you. <laughs> so it's not worth it. There are other examples of things that reliably lead to high conflict, but one is that there are two binary groups or choices like yes, no, good, bad, Democrat, Republican. Don't, don't have two groups, okay, <laughs> whatever you do. If you want to like figure out whether your church should do interfaith marriage, don't put it up for a yes, no vote. Don't do that. But that's just feeds into our worst conflict instincts for lots of reasons. But there's, so there are certain things you want to just kind of keep an eye out for and avoid. And then there are certain things that we know can help cultivate good conflict. So sort of knowing that there are these two kinds of conflict, the conflict itself is not the enemy. But, but high conflict is, right? And then it's like, how do we create good conflict? And one way to do that is through complexity, to revive curiosity, to ask different questions and ask them often, to really try to get very different approach to listening um, and make it systematic across an organization. So there's lots there, but like there are things that you can do that make good conflict more likely. I have one more. I always like to ask this to people. Okay. When you think about the future, which emoji do you think describes the way that you feel <laughs> about where things are headed? Definitely this one, the prayer. <laughs> Definitely the prayer. So you're praying that, that polarization and conflict will be reduced. My biggest fear for a year, at least maybe more, has been um, once you have political violence, 
it's very hard to unwind because then there's revenge and then there's like it just goes on and on and on it's just like gang violence there's no difference and so you know we we have had political violence you usually see it increase before and after an election we have had that obviously january 6th was an example my fear is that it, we're not done you know i hope i'm wrong about that certainly biden has turned down the volume on some of the most inflammatory rhetoric and that rhetoric really matters um so what i hope for when i do the prayer emoji in my head is like i hope for most americans to speak up like you know the exhausted majority of Americans who are tired of the sort of extremism in the media, of the you know fear mongering that they see, of the nasty rhetoric on social media, it is time for the rest of us to speak up because normally what happens is we flee the scene and the extremists take over, right? And unfortunately, they're under the thrall of high conflict right now, and it's very hard for them to see what's happening. But in high conflict, I promise you this, I've seen it in every case I've studied, you eventually mimic the behavior of your adversary. You eventually do the very thing that you are most afraid of happening and the reason you entered the conflict. So it is, it is, a, it is a diabolical game to play. And so it's up to the rest of us, the people just outside of some of that heat, to help everyone else out and to speak up and to try to call for decency and for, for peace. And we know that that actually matters. Like in research, if you call on Twitter for no violence and under any circumstances, people actually hear that. People in your network hear that. And so it matters. Thank you, Amanda. It's been so rewarding to have these discussions with you because the work you're doing is very parallel to the work that we're doing. You're talking to journalists, we're talking to PR people, but the ideas are very similar. And I think that uh, the, the solutions are very similar. And I, I'm hoping that if more and more people are talking about this, that more and more people will be listening. Yeah. So, can I, Fred, can I ask you for a quick favor sure. for whoever's listening? Yeah. If you are working at or aware of an organization or company that is trying to do conflict differently, and they're open to having someone write about it, I would love to tell that story because that's, we have to surface these stories, like that it is possible to do conflict differently and it, it requires some risk, right? And it requires being open to admitting that we got it wrong sometimes and we're trying something new. But those are great stories to tell just like, just like all, all the other inflammatory stories they need to be told. Despite the high levels of conflict that Amanda describes in her book, by the end, her message is clear. There is hope. We still have a chance to create a better tomorrow, characterized by good conflict, but it's going to take patience, hard work, and a change in the way we communicate with one another. To learn more about the future of our industry, check out the playback of our Kenneth Aller Smith Symposium on Politics, Polarization, and Purpose, and download your copy of the 2021 Global Communication Report at the link in show notes. And thanks for tuning in again to PR Future, a progressive podcast created by PR professionals for PR professionals. Or you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode was recorded and produced remotely in Los Angeles by Ron Antoinette and Zazu Lippert, with production support from Anthony Baca, Michael Bronstein, and Sarah Latman. And I'm your host, Fred Cook, and this is PR Future.